Well, good morning, everyone. And it's nice to see that some people actually came back after last week. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, chapter 19 of Judges was indeed, um, from my perspective, the single most difficult chapter ever to preach through or preach on because of its subject matter, because of its absolute anarchy, depravity, and disregard for life. And I would love for this week to get even better than last week, but we are on a terrible trajectory in the book of Judges in chapter 20. Chapter 19 records all the events that occurred. Chapter 20 records the war that happens that we're looking at today. And chapter 21 records um, the catastrophic conclusion to this battle and the consequences of this war. And right now, we have sort of, in the book of Judges, reached a boiling point. That's a point in which there is absolute turmoil occurring. And you might talk about being at wit's end. You might be talking about, hey, I'm at the end of the rope. Whatever you might use as an expression that this is it, we have the culmination of centuries of living in sin and tolerating sin, coming to a head, coming to a conclusion, there is indeed going to be a reckoning in Israel for their, what we saw in chapter 19, not only acceptance of homosexuality, but its promotion and its devastating effect upon the life of just one person. But it just did not affect the wife of the Levite. It affected the entire nation to some degree. And finally, the nation has been woken up to the sin that is in their own midst and they need to deal with it because if they don't deal with it who knows what the conclusion might be so Israel is now riled up because the Levite remember at the end of chapter 19 did what to his wife that was murdered cut her up into 12 pieces and sent her around the nation as an email basically saying, this is what happened to my wife. What are we going to do about it? So we pick that up in chapter 20. Israel has now been alerted to what's going on, and they take action. And the action we see is a gathering of the troops in Judges chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. We read that in these two verses. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Bathsheba, including the land of Gilead, and a congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people and all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. So we're told a couple things about this gathering that takes place first and foremost. The word goes throughout all the land. So as far as Israel has influence, those tribes have been notified about the actions of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. In the process, they gather 400,000 people who knew how to use a sword, which means they were military. And they gather in two ways, which I find interesting that happens throughout the book of Judges, the last few chapters. They gather as one person meaning they have one focus. They are going to deal with the sin of the Benjamites and rid sin of their own lives. In the past, they've relied upon a judge every now and again to do it. Now they need to do it for themselves. And they gather as one person, one man, one army, one force with one determination. We need to deal with this. 
We are at a boiling point, a breaking point. We can't allow this to happen any longer. And they gather with the Lord, before the Lord. There is indeed some type of revival happening in Israel. This has finally got their attention to make their spiritual living and words respond to what God has given them. They are now truly going to behave as God's people. And they first go before the Lord. So the troops are gathered. Now, all of this is taking place geographically just a little north and west of where Jerusalem is. So Jerusalem is centered sort of in this central location. And so they're a little bit north and west, that whole area where City Park is. I know we've talked about that a lot. A lot of things are happening in that area geographically in Israel. That's kind of where it's all happening right now. So they're all gathered there. They're assembled before God. They're acknowledging God's role in this. And they're asking for his blessing, as it turns out. Verse 3 through 7, they really want to find out, why are we here? Okay, we got the message, a body part. Now let's hear the rest of the message. So they're going to find out why they all gathered. (laughs) They might have known some of the details beforehand, but now they're going to get all the details. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah, and the people of Israel said, tell us how this evil happened. So the report has already gotten out to the tribe of Benjamin. People are gathering north of them. And so they ask, Tell us, what, um, tell us how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah, that belongs to Benjamin, I, my concubine, uh, I and my concubine, to spend the night. Of course, he was also with his servant. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her into pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed an abomination, an outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. So all he does is recount exactly what happened in chapter 19. And maybe instead of looking at chapter 19, we could have just read this and done away with some of those gory details. But he summarizes exactly what happened in the days that followed his time picking back up his wife from his father-in-law. Tragic. And the story is even more gory in chapter 19, mirroring exactly what happened in Genesis 19 at Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he lays down the charges. This is what happened. And he basically lays down the gauntlet, the challenge. Now that you know what has happened, what are you going to do? That's what he's basically asking, because he's asking the question, what should we do? Give me your counsel. What should be done? And I can imagine everyone who was listening to that, at least 400,000 military men ready to go to war are just seething with righteous anger about what has happened to the people of God, especially the tribe of Benjamin. They are furious. And so they start to take military action in verse 8. 
And all the people arose as one man. Notice that phrase again. They have one goal in mind. They are now operating not as 400,000 individuals, but one person with one purpose, with one goal, to confront Benjamin, to rid sin from the camp, and reestablish God as their covenantal God throughout their land, which means no more homosexuality, no more rape, no more murder. That's their goal. And they're standing as one person against the tyranny of Benjamin's sinfulness. So all the people arose as one man saying, none of us will go to his tent, none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gebah. So they are, they are persuaded with as much national persuasion and fervor for God that there will be no rest until they deal with this. No more vacations, no more going home, no more easy life, although I think living in a tent in the middle of a desert is not an easy life, but they're looking at that going, hey, we're not going to do any of that until we have finished dealing with this sin and this tragedy. Now they put some plans into action, verse 9, but now this is what we'll do to Geba, which is the town that all this happened in, and we will go up against it by lot, and we will take 10 men out of 100 throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred out of a thousand, and a thousand out of ten thousand to bring provisions for the people, that when they come, they may repay Geba of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as, again that phrase, one man. So what they're doing in this chapter is just setting the ground rules for how the siege is going to take place. And they're dividing people up so those people can make sure that they have supplies for the rest of the people. So some people are on supply duty. And other people are on, we're attacking the fortified walls of the city. Now, Gaba, in basic terms, probably has no more than 5,000 residents. Not a huge city. I mean, it's, it's a blip on a map of Israel and they have 400,000 warriors ready to go up against that city. I would imagine being so outnumbered, Benjamin may have thought, maybe we need to deal with this in a peaceful way because they will wipe us out. Or maybe Benjamin is thinking, we are really good at war. In fact, remember, the second judge of Israel, Ehud, was left-handed, and he stuck his left-handed sword into the belly of Eglon and gave us victory. Maybe they're thinking, we're really good at this, and so if we only have 1,000 or 5,000, we can take them on. Sin gives people a real sense of arrogance and self-inflated worth and ability. So I think that's the path that Benjamin is going to take, well, it is because I've read the rest of the story, but we don't know that yet. So there may be a peaceful solution right around the corner, and I think that is exactly what Israel really wants to accomplish because we see it happening in verse 12 through verse 19. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribes of Benjamin, saying... So here they're sending some people to their brothers and saying, what evil is this that has taken place among you. They don't call it a mistake. They don't call it an error in judgment. They call it for what it is. It is sin. It is a violation of God's holy standard and his word to his people. 
that they've acted this way and they've tolerated it and they have allowed it to fester and grow within their community. But Israel sends people first and foremost to say, hey, what's going on here? There's dialogue first, not swords, not war, but dialogue happens first. What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows of Geba, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. That is the just punishment for their sin, for their crime. And the Israelites, first of all, go to the tribe of Benjamin and say, hey, we can resolve this in a peaceful way. Give up the people that did this. It wasn't hundreds of people. It wasn't the whole town. It was a group of worthless fellow men that wanted to take advantage of the Levite, then took advantage of the, his wife, and murdered her. Just give us the people who are guilty, and all of this will go away. Let them pay the penalty for their sin. Remember, they are also surrounded by 400,000 warriors. A lot of people. But the Benjamites, we're told in verse 13, but the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. They put their feet in the ground and they stuck to it. They were going to die or live based upon their decision. They did not care about counsel. They were not convicted. They did not have a sense of reflection. They dug their heels in and said, bring it on. Not going to happen. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gabah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. That was the response the Benjamites had to this peace deal. Let's talk about this, give us the guilty people, and everything will be over. They decided, no, let's go to war. So all the little villages, all the little towns surrounding Gabah, they bring together as one army, the Benjamite army, to fight whom? Their own brothers. The Israelites, they're going to war against themselves. Civil war. God has never designed God's people to be at war with themselves. Do they have challenges between themselves? Oh, yes. Do they disagree between themselves? Oh, yes. Do they have arguments? Oh, yes. Do they have wars? Oh, they do, but they shouldn't. They shouldn't have division, but they do. God did not design his people to be divided and attacking one another. We have enough enemies in the world. We don't need to create enemies among ourselves. We need to be like the Israelites, one person. We have one goal, one person. And as the New Testament tells us, we have one Lord, one spirit, one baptism. We are united. We may have disagreements, but that doesn't destroy our unity in Christ. His blood is far thicker than family blood or national blood or water. His blood in our lives binds us, unites us for eternity. We'll not always be identified as people that go to Calvary, but we will always be identified as people who belong to Christ, always. That unity of God, that unity of salvation, that unity of message, that unity of holiness, that unity even of the nation, did not persuade the Benjamites. Maybe they were blind to the sin. Maybe they took family relations greater than their relationship with God. And so if you're going to attack my brother, I'm going to attack you. Regardless if he's right or wrong, it doesn't matter. That's foolishness. If they're wrong, deal with it. 
Don't hide it. Don't support it. And definitely don't go to war over it. I have a feeling Benjamin's not going to win this battle. But we'll see. Verse 15. Then the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword. How many people did Israel have ready to go to war? 400,000. In my mind, and I don't do math very well, but I think the percentage is greatly in favor of the Israelites in this case. Besides the inhabitants of Goba, who mustered 700 chosen men, among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So what we're being told here is that the Benjamites probably took a lot of pride and confidence in the fact that they were incredibly gifted warriors. Maybe they were the, and I just forgot the word, special forces of Israel. These 700 might have been able to take on twice as many, maybe even 10 times as many. Let's say they could take on 100 times as many. That's only 70,000 that they could take on. But Israel had amassed 400,000 warriors to deal with this sin. So I don't care how special forces your special forces may be, Benjamin. I don't care how left-handed or right-handed you are. I don't care that you can take a sling and take that stone and hit the hair off of a fly. It doesn't matter. You're not going to be able to stop 400,000 people. And so we're told in verse 17, And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. Which is, which is Scripture's way of saying, these are not first-time volunteers who rose their hand and said, Hey, if you give me a sword, I'll, I'll figure out how to use it. These are 400,000 people who have, for their entire lives and existence, been fighting all these little tribes and all these little Hittites and Amorites and Asmonites and all these otherites, day in and day out, in order to protect their little slice of land that God had promised them. They knew how to fight. They knew about warfare. They knew how to wield that sword. They knew what death and life battle felt like and looked like. They were surrounded by it, hardened by it, experienced by it. And if they're alive, I'd say they were probably good at it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be alive. So the people of Israel, verse 18, arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God. They went to God again. And when it says they inquired of God, that would have been a time of prayer and worship. That would have been a time where they set themselves before God and said, what do you want of us? Lead us, guide us, give us wisdom and understanding. Help our military might and our fight for justice and truth and holiness. Help us, Father. Be to us our God in this moment of battle. We are standing for your righteousness and to rid our nation of sin. Be with us. Be with us. Not once. So this is the second time that Israel has gathered before God. Not once in all three of these chapters does it ever say the tribe of Benjamin inquired of God, went before God, prostrated themselves before God and asked him, 
Is there a wicked way in me? Is there sin in my life? Do I need to be the one who repents or should I stay steadfast and fight against all odds? Never once do they go before God and say, reveal to me your will and your truth. The Israelites did. The other tribes certainly did. And the Lord said to him, or said to them, uh, oh, so the people of Israel rose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? Remember, there's 400,000 made up of uh, all these tribes. Who's going to take the lead? Uh, and the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. So they got word from God that Judah should lead the army. Then all the people arose in the morning and encamped against Geba, surrounding the city. I know it does no good to tell you don't read ahead because it's a good thing to read ahead. It's a good thing to read even the week before what's going to be preached on next week. Hint, Judges chapter 21 next week. So it is okay to read ahead, but if you hadn't read ahead, you might think, man, Benjamin is going to get whooped. There is no chance that 700 Special Forces guys that know how to sling a stone with their left hand and can get, hit the hair off a gnat has any chance against 400,000 trained, experienced military troops. No way! Because these guys, the Israelites, are going before God. The Benjamites aren't. These people of Israel are going as one man. They have one goal, one purpose. Their heart is set on restoring holiness in Israel. But then we have to read the next few verses. Verses 20 through 28 record a devastating loss at the hands of the Benjamites. Verse 20, And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin, and the men of Israel drew up the battle lines against them at Geba. And the people of Benjamin came out of Geba and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. How many men did Benjamin actually have that gathered together to fight? Well, they had the 26,000 that showed up and then the 700 special guys from the city. So they had less than 27,000 military people at their disposal. And that 27,000 killed 22,000 that very first day of battle. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place as they had formed it on the first day. Maybe not the wisest choice, but I'm not in their situation. They certainly saw the advantage perhaps to that. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, shall we draw again near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, go up against them. So their response to the very first day of battle where they lost 22,000 of their brothers. What was their first reaction? Hold steady the line. Hold steady the line. And then all night long, we are going to weep before God. And maybe we'll ask the question, why? 
That's human. That's natural. God accepts that question. Why is this happening? Why did we lose? Why were we not victorious? I thought you were with us, God. I'm sure all of those doubts, all of those anxieties were there. And I imagine fear was there. Before they were so filled with encouragement because they were surrounded by 400,000 of their friends going into battle. And they suffered their first loss, which was a huge loss. Someone could do the math, but I imagine that's somewhere around 5%, maybe? Give or take a little bit. That's, that's a good chunk of people to lose in one day battle. But they went to God and sought him first and foremost. And God told them again, go to battle. Verse 24, so the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Geba and the second day and destroyed 18,000 of the people of Israel. All of these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept and sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. They suffered their second loss in two days and their response is to double down spiritually. It wasn't, okay, get more reinforcements. It wasn't, we need better tactical plans. It wasn't, we need more training. Their first response was, after a day of battle, let's not eat. And let's fast and worship God and inquire of him through sacrifices and through burnt offerings. Help us, help us help us. They may not have had the military battle wit at the moment, but they had spiritual life that was on fire. And so they asked God again, the second day after losing another 18,000 people, so they're up to almost 40,000 in losses, 10% of their army is dead. They sat before the Lord and fasted until evening, all the burnt offerings, peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those chosen days. And Phinehas, the son of Eliza, the son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, this is Israel before God, saying, shall we go up once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? After two losses, they're probably thinking, maybe we shouldn't continue this. And the Lord said, go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. God, why couldn't you have said that a couple days before? We would have saved 40,000 people. And we would have saved all this frustration. We would have saved all of this narrative in the book of Judges that someone will read one day, 2,500 or 3,000 years later, we could have saved all that. Why did you not give us victory the first time we came to you? I don't know about you, but I don't have an answer to that. And I am sure you will forget to ask that question when you see God one day. I think all of those questions that we have are not going to be super important once we see his glorious brilliance and his resurrected son ruling and reigning at his right hand. I don't think any of those questions will matter one bit. But I know that they were asking that question of themselves. Why didn't you give us victory the first time? 
Did we misread something? What did we do wrong? And it may not have been anything. God sometimes allows and puts real hardships and defeats in our life so that we would draw nearer to him. God cares more about our character than our comfort. Every single day, our comfort is extra. It's a bonus next to his developing our character. So I imagine he's developing their character quite a bit. Dependence upon God, crying out to him, humbling him, bearing our own sins, making sure that we are right with God. He has that army attentive to every single word of his. And so he moves on and gives them a promise, tomorrow they're going to be in your hands. So the day arrives, verse 29 of Judges 20. So Israel set men in ambush around Geba, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Geba as at other times. So it doesn't sound like at the very beginning their tactics are very different. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Geba and the other into open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, they are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. Let's get them away from their safety, from their base. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baltimore, and the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out, rushed out of their place from Magog, Geba, and there came against Geba 10,000 chosen men out of all of Israel, and the battle was hard. But the Benjamites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. So they were left with less than 2,000. And they were all men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The rest of the chapter... Chapter 37 through 48 simply gives details to that last day of battle. But I can imagine Benjamin on that third day, having won two victorious battles, starts to pursue the Israelites. The Israelites fake them out, draw them out, pretend they're running, and the Benjamites are probably screaming and yelling, yes, we did it again, we did it again. And all of a sudden, they turn around, and they notice the army of Israel standing between them and safety. And they are completely outwitted, not by Israelites' military might, but by God giving them into Israel's hand that day. There was nothing the Benjamites could have done. No special forces, no left-handed wielding spear throwers, or not spear throwers, Sling, rock, sling guys. None of that could save them out of the grips of what God had planned for Benjamin that day. Wiped out. Wiped out. Not 5%, not 10% of their army, but virtually 100% of their army was destroyed. In the very last verse of verse 
of chapter 20, verse 48, it sums it up. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all that they found. And all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Now, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, was not just in one town. They had an area, a geographical area, you might say a county. And so all the little towns and villages within that county all supported Benjamin, all sent people to this war and battle, and Israel took them all out. No one was safe. None of the Benjamites in that land repented, bowed the knee before God, and admitted their sin. They were steadfast in a negative way to hold on to their sin and the sins of their brothers instead of repenting and turning their lives over to God at that moment. God gave them ample chances. He gave them three days to do it. And they refused. Now the rest of that chapter, the rest of verse 36, all the way through verse 48, are super important, but it gives details about the war that took place on that day, how Israel routed them. And because we have limited time this morning, I'm not discounting the value of those verses, but I figure that the next verses that I'm going to talk about applying it to us are super important because if I don't get to those and I just talk about the battle, we're left here with one thought. The thought might be, who do we go to battle against? Because this is an in-charge type of chapter. Who do we strike against who is sinning? Might be a question that comes to mind. So we have to get to the take-home section so that we understand how do we put an understanding into these verses that we just read. And so I think, first of all, we have to ask the question, because this is what the chapter raises, is how do we deal with the sins of others? Now, last week we saw how to deal with our sin. Confess it. Make ourselves right with God through the sacrifice and blood of Jesus Christ, who offers his sacrifice and forgiveness free and full to everyone who asks. All you have to do is cry out to him, forgive, and he forgives. So we know how to deal with our sin, the sin that we find, the sin that we're convicted of, the sin that we're told about, the sin we're confronted over. We know how to deal with it. But what if the roles were reversed and we're in the nation of Israel and we're looking at the sin of someone in our own midst? How do we deal with that? And so first and foremost, I want to turn to the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be in the book of Ephesians, the fifth chapter, for a little bit. So you can turn there. A lot of verses to look here. But I think one of the first things that Scripture points out to us in dealing with, hey, how do we deal with the sin in others? It is to be resolved. It is to have an understanding that this does not just disappear if we ignore it. It doesn't just simply go away. There was a time uh, early, early on uh, where uh, a cousin and I uh, shared a car. And uh, it was a hand-me-down car. And if you know anything about me, you know that when it comes to cars and mechanical things, um, I... Well, let's put it this way. Um, I've had AAA for probably 30 years, okay, to help me change a tire. So I am not mechanically inclined. I got lots of stories about how I have failed miserably 
when it comes to cars. But this check engine light came on, and the oil light came on. And my cousin and I, you know, sometimes it would go off, but usually it would stay on. And um, this is not a meme. It's not anything like that. But I remember having a conversation with her saying, you know, I think that when it really gets bad, they'll beep at us. So until it beeps, I think we're safe. Until it beeps. Um, you know what? It never beeped. You know what it did? It died. Right there on the freeway, died. It stopped working. And I remember my uncle saying, did you guys not know something was wrong with it? And here I am. Oh, yeah, yeah, the lights came on, but we figured that there'd be like a beeping noises or an alert system or another light that came on that told us, this is really bad, you got to get it fixed. That light never happened. Sin never just simply goes away. When it's there, it's there to do its job, which is to destroy and to lie to you about it. So it doesn't simply go away. So the first answer to how do we deal with sin in others, it's to be resolved to know that this has to be seen through. We can't just simply ignore it and let it go away. It says in verse 3 of chapter 5 of Ephesians, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And sexual immorality was the number one thing that the tribe of Benjamin was struggling at. And Paul says, don't let it be named among you. Don't even let it be part of who you are, your identity. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one be deceived or deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. There should be no question in your mind that sin undealt with, God will deal with it. It's not going to go away. He's not going to sweep it under the rug. He's not going to mislabel it. He's not going to ignore it. you got to deal with it. He then goes on in the next section of verses to give us some hints on how to deal with it in a very loving way gracious way. He says, therefore, do not become partners with them. Don't accept it. Don't acknowledge it as far as it's normal. Don't participate in it. Don't raise their flag. Don't take on their name. Don't partake with them. For at one time you were in darkness. And notice how Paul reminds us of our change. Before he says to do something with them, he says, don't participate with them. And then remember, you too were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. The tribe of Benjamin didn't even do it in secret, did they? 
But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What Paul does is not give you a set of instructions of do this, then this, then this, then this, then this, but he gives you the overall plan of live as children of the light in the midst of darkness. Put your faith on display. Live, love, forgive, show mercy, show tenderness, show kindness, but don't compromise. Live the faith in front of those who practice, promote, and acknowledge darkness in their life. Live as children of the light. And as you live, as you express true faith and true love living from your actions and your words, the people around you who are sold to darkness, they will see that and they will have one or two responses. They will have a response of, hey, when I'm around you, you never participate in those dirty jokes. You never change your Facebook profile to the flag. You, I mean, what, what's different about you? They may inquire of you, what's different they were, they were swearing at you and laughing at you, and you didn't get angry. Why not? They may be inquisitive, and what an amazing way to share your faith. But they also may respond quite negatively. They may become very judgmental, and they may slander you and lie about you and ostracize you and kick you out of their in-group. They may cancel you. But far better to be canceled by darkness and live in the light than to be compromised by it, to accept it, and to promote it even in silence. And lastly, in Matthew chapter 18, if you find yourself in a situation, Jesus says very clearly, when someone is in sin, you have a responsibility as a fellow believer to go to that person and confront them one-on-one -on -one by yourself. Don't tell other people about the sin. Don't tell other people about the offense. Don't tell other people about it at all. You go by yourself and deal with your brother. And if you win them, you win them. But if they don't listen to you, then you take a second person. You don't tell 20 people about it. You tell one other person, and the two of you go and deal with it. And if that does not work, if they do not repent, then you're to tell the church. That is the leadership of the church to take disciplinary action against that person in the context of them being identified as a believer in the church. Again, you don't go sharing all the details with everybody you know, trying to get evidence on your side or support on your side. You tell one person at first, then you tell the church leadership. And so Jesus gives very clear directions on how to deal with sin in the camp. And amazingly, it feels like that is exactly what the tribe of Israel did. They went before the God and said, help us. And then they sent people to the tribe of Benjamin and said, hey, let's deal with this in a peaceful way. And the Benjamites turned the hand of the Israelites to war and darkness lost. Just like darkness will lose again 
at the last day. It may feel like darkness has a lot of sway right now. It may feel like it has a lot of promotion and a lot of power right now. But if you read the end of the story, in the book of Revelation in particular, that power, all 100% all of it is destroyed. Amen? Amen.